If you've listened to Potstirer Podcast over a long period of time, it should come as no surprise that I am no fan of my congressional representative, Steve Shabbat. I see the longtime Republican as an opportunist who has repeatedly stoked the fires of racial animosity in the Cincinnati area for his own political gain. And ever since Trump was elected, Shabbat has been solidly in his corner. Ever since redistricting in Ohio back in 2011, Shabbat's seat has been safe. Since then, the closest he has gotten to losing re-election was in the 2018 midterm election against Democrat Aftab Pirival. What saved Shabbat was the map. Ohio has long been considered a swing state. It is often seen as a bellwether for presidential elections as the electorate is pretty evenly split between Republicans and Democrats. But the state routinely sends 12 Republicans and only four Democrats to Congress every two years, a ratio of three to one. The congressional map for my state is severely gerrymandered. Gerrymandering refers to redistricting plans that are designed to disproportionately favor one party. These are often characterized by strangely drawn districts that are meant to either pack certain voters into specific districts so their influence is contained, which is known as packing, or spread out over a centralized population of voters into several districts where their influence is diluted, which is called cracking. I'll put it like this. Cincinnati, which is where I live, is the third largest city in Ohio. And despite the city being mostly Democratic politically, it has no influence in Congress. None. Nada. Zilch. Zero. None. Why? Because the map splits Cincinnati in half and dilutes its influence by including in each of these two districts nearby suburban counties that are overwhelmingly Republican. This is gerrymandering, and in particular, cracking. Now, to address this, Ohio voters voted for a measure in 2018 that would take redistricting out of the hands of the mostly Republican state legislature and into the hands of an independent committee to end the extreme gerrymandering in Ohio. There was also a number of gerrymandering-related lawsuits that were winding through the courts. As it was, Ohio's situation is not isolated. After the 2010 census, which allocates the number of seats each state gets in the House of Representatives, Republican state legislatures across the country made a concerted effort to cement outsized influence in Congress through gerrymandering. And because of that, the hope was that the congressional map in Ohio could be changed before the 2020 presidential election. But the increasingly conservative U.S. Supreme Court came down with their opinion last week, stating that political gerrymandering is not within the court's purview and also barred lower federal courts from taking up these cases in the future. In other words, political gerrymandering that leads to Cincinnati's lack of congressional representation is perfectly legal. This was a huge blow to Democratic representation, and this also means that any further fight against gerrymandering needs to happen at the state level, which is often an uphill battle. So this means that in each election, regardless of when it is, make sure you vote. As for Ohio, this means that the new redistricting process that Ohio voters wanted 
won't take effect until 2022. Just enough time for Steve Shabbat and Ohio's Republicans to further bury democracy. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. The U.S. Supreme Court has come into sharp focus in recent years as Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and the Republican Party have sought to shape the court and the federal judiciary as a whole in their image. As the Democratic Party has started waking up to, a bit late might I add, the judiciary is a huge part of U.S. governance and one that must be taken seriously. Beyond managing disputes, the courts in our system of checks and balances is in place to interpret laws, particularly to declare if they match up against the U.S. Constitution. The U.S. Constitution, as well as treaties, are the supreme law of the land. The Republican Party filling up the courts with Heritage Foundation types is essentially their way of safeguarding ultimate power for the next several decades and beyond for the predominantly white conservative, mostly evangelical constituents. By 2045, which is only 26 years away, the non-Hispanic white population in the United States is projected to drop to less than 50%, and they will no longer be the majority. Also, American evangelicals often focus on higher birth rates among Muslims and other non-Christian religions compared to Christians worldwide, not always with evidence, as a driver for Christian families, especially in the U.S. and European countries to have more children. And this reality strikes fear in a number of white conservatives. I get more into this in the episode Onward Christian Soldiers, which is what I believe episode 39. Part of the reason why Republicans are resorting to draconian abortion bans is because of the white birth rate in the U.S., which lags behind the birth rates of a number of other racial and ethnic groups, such as Latinos and Black Americans in a country that is increasingly looking less and less like them, there is a drive to retain power and dominance. And the courts are a way to do just that, as U.S. Supreme Court justice slots and other federal judgeships are lifetime appointments. Understandably, many Democratic presidential candidates for 2020 have been discussing the U.S. Supreme Court and what can be done to mitigate or reverse the damage done by the GOP's filling up of the court with Trump judges. One of these ideas that I thought was kind of interesting came from our favorite Midwestern mayor, Pete Buttigieg. While many Democratic candidates have floated the idea of doing something to mitigate the increasing conservatism on the U.S. Supreme Court, Mayor Pete has made his plan a central part of his campaign platform. According to a story by NBC News and an article by The Atlantic, here's the plan in a nutshell. The plan is to expand the U.S. Supreme Court to 15 justices, five Republican, five Democratic, and five independent justices chosen by the 10 partisan justices. The partisan justices would serve for life. The independent justices would serve one-year, non-renewable terms, but would be chosen two years in advance so that they would not be chosen in anticipation of specific court cases. If the 10 partisan justices can't agree on the independent justices, the court would be said to lack a quorum 
and would not hear cases that term. Here's the thing. We actually aren't required to have nine justices. The number of justices is up to Congress. Over the course of U.S. history, we started out with five justices, and there have been as many as ten serving at one time. Mayor Pete says of the plan, quote, The reform of not just expanding the number of members, but doing it in a way where some of them are selected on a consensus, nonpartisan basis, is a very promising way to do it. There may be others, but the point is, we've got to get out of where we are now, where anytime there's an opening, there's an apocalyptic ideological firefight. It harms the court, it harms the country, and it leads to outcomes like we have right now. End quote. And let's talk about these outcomes. Every U.S. Supreme Court vacancy is a major battle and has increasingly become more and more partisan. And there are such high stakes. This term, the Supreme Court has had argued in front of it cases that involve double jeopardy and separate sovereigns, gerrymandering, presidential powers, and abortion is definitely coming down the pike as well. Thing is, Mayor Pete's idea for the court is not without precedent. Commercial arbitration is set up similarly. Each side chooses a trusted arbitrator, and the two chosen arbitrators then choose a third neutral arbitrator, which can function as the swing vote. The other thing to understand is that constitutionally, there is little said of the judiciary branch. Its role is to interpret laws, and it took the case of Marbury v. Madison in 1803 to spell out the court's role in interpreting the U.S. Constitution, particularly the right of the court to declare legislative and executive actions unconstitutional, which is called the power of judicial review. But most relevant to this discussion is the fact that the number of justices on the U.S. Supreme Court is not fixed by the Constitution. In other words, we are not required to only have nine justices. The court started out at five justices, and in our history, there have been as many as ten. The current number of nine was set by the Judiciary Act of 1869. So while the number of justices has been set to its current number for 150 years, there's nothing constitutionally keeping this from being changed. Of course, in this climate, this would mean that the Democrats would not only have to win the presidency, but they would also have to take back the Senate and keep the House. But I wanted to highlight this particular plan because it's pretty fascinating. The main pro of this plan is that it would, at least in theory, neutralize partisanship on the U.S. Supreme Court. Because of the seat that was stolen from President Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, and then given to Trump appointee Neil Gorsuch, and then the Senate's push to fast-track court picks over doing any other aspect of their jobs, such as past laws, we're facing a situation right now where the court is artificially being pushed to the right. And more importantly for our democracy, this rightward shift is not representative of the American people or where the population as a whole is going. We're in this situation because of a perfect storm of two things. A New York con man who took advantage of racial and ethnic hostilities, religious extremism, and an opponent who took her inevitability for granted to become president, with a little help from his friends, and a Senate with a solid Republican majority, mostly due to geography, 
taking advantage of the conservatism in smaller, less populated states, also with some Russian assistance that is skilled in playing the long game. So we're seeing ideas such as a 15-seat Supreme Court as Hail Marys to mitigate or reverse the damage done to what should be a separate, politically independent branch of government. But there are cons. Oh boy, there are cons. Now to preface this, I don't want to pick on Mayor Pete too much. It's probably not a mystery if you've listened to April's episode about democratic strategy, but Pete Buttigieg is not on my list of preferred Democratic nominee picks because he's more of a centrist, centered right on a properly calibrated political spectrum, but a number of his supporters try to market him as a progressive. I would say that he is more Biden than Bernie, just without the hashtag MeToo baggage. But that said, I think Mayor Pete does have some good ideas, and I like his energy. I do think the drawbacks of the 15 Justice Plan are worth discussing in depth because these represent some of the major obstacles the Democrats face in turning the tide of an increasingly right-wing judiciary. President George Washington decried the idea of factions or parties in the government of the newly formed United States of America. But pretty much since the beginning, parties have indeed existed. The winner-take-all electoral system first past the post elections, and in the case of the presidency, the Electoral College, leads to the U.S. only having two viable parties, as opposed to the multi-party system of most parliamentary governments. In the U.S., we have always had two major parties. Third parties have achieved some success in some localities and have occasionally made a notable impact on a state or national level. But beyond a governorship or some state-level popularity, or a congressional house or senate seat here or there, or playing spoiler in presidential elections, they have not achieved much in the way of viability to the degree that it threatens either of the current major parties. That said, the Republicans and Democrats have not always been the two major parties. They've only been the two major parties since 1860. Now, 159 years is still a very long time, but the fact that there are these two major parties doesn't necessarily mean they will be the two major parties for the remainder of our country's lifespan. But why have they been so dominant so long? Part of it is because party loyalty is an identity for people, rather than your typical choose Coke or Pepsi. The greatest predictor of vote choice is partisanship. Despite this romanticized notion that we vote for individuals, not the party, most Americans vote straight ticket for one party. And it's telling that while ideologies have shifted within the major parties over the past 150 plus years, the Republicans and Democrats have been the two dominant parties since the Civil War. The Civil War, which lasted from 1861 through 1865, was a defining moment in our country's history and has left a mark on how Americans view themselves and their place in this country, even to this day. But besides that, the Democratic and Republican parties have continued to be the two major parties because they have locked in their own dominance. Laws that restrict ballot access to parties and candidates based on past electoral performance, as well as rules locking participation in pre-election debates based on similar criteria, 
favors the major parties. In addition, both parties have, over the past several decades, have become more ideological. It was not always the case that the parties had a wide platform with positions on pretty much every single issue. Neither party was fully ideological. They had positions on a few issues, particularly the economy, but this allowed for the parties to be big tents. At one time, there were socially conservative and socially liberal Republicans and socially conservative and socially liberal Democrats. Because for the parties on a national level, issues outside of the economy weren't really addressed by the parties as a whole. This is why popular conservative memes such as the KKK were Democrats 150 years ago, so the Democrats must be white supremacists now, are disingenuous. While the KKK were largely Democrats during the Jim Crow period in American history, post-Civil War until the Civil Rights Movement, this was regional. Most of the Democratic Klansmen were in southern former Confederate states. But during this same time period, in Indiana, a northern state with a strong and deeply rooted Klan history, complete with sundown towns, the KKK was loyal to the GOP. So in fact, the national parties were not steeped in ideology, but this meant that for those who cared about issues the national party didn't care about, such as the environment or abortion, they didn't really have a home. Third parties were often the home of politically involved Americans who cared about a particular issue or set of issues, but didn't feel they had a place in the parties. But as the parties have become more ideological over the past 40 years, the issues that the third parties addressed were then co-opted by the major parties. So for voters caring about the environment or abortion, the major parties provide more muscle for their ideas than the third parties, which has undermined their attraction. While there are still a significant number of voters who vote third party, and we can definitely see that in the 2016 presidential election, most single-issue voters or voters who care about a narrow set of issues have chosen to support the major party that takes their position on those issues, or at least are the closest to their position. But while the Democratic and Republican parties are the two major parties right now, that could change. Mayor Pete's 15-member court plan would essentially bake in the dominance of the two major parties in the guise of being fair and balanced. People who vote for third parties, even if they do so with hope, their party will eventually gain enough votes for viability, their impact will be limited because their party can't be included by law on the Supreme Court. Now, of course, if enacting this plan requires regular legislative action, this can be amended, but we'll get to that in a bit. This 15 justice structure also doesn't allow the flexibility for political change. Like if one of the major parties does collapse in the future and another one rises to take its place. It also limits the court's ideological spectrum. While I don't subscribe to the idea that the two parties are the same, on an ideological spectrum between unbridled capitalism and unrestrained socialism, the parties are closer than we think. While there are Democrats who are actually democratic socialists, such as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders, the National Party is closer to capitalism on that spectrum than socialism. And then, of course, the GOP is closer still. This reflects the Overton window, which is the range of political ideas that the electorate will accept without the politicians holding them 
appearing too extreme. This will keep people holding extreme ideas off the court, which sounds good in theory, but not all extreme ideas are necessarily bad and not all acceptable ideas are good. So this can be problematic in practice. So for example, using zero tolerance family separation in internment camps for Central American refugees is acceptable policy, therefore within the Overton window. While blanket student loan forgiveness and publicly funded higher education is not. So the court will only be amenable to mainstream ideas rather than good ideas, and because the independent justices are being chosen by the partisan 10, they will likely hold views that fall within the Overton window. Also, what if over time that Overton window shifts, but the partisan members of the court, the permanent members, are the same? We get an extreme court without the court's composition actually changing. We just end up in the same position we were in to begin with. Hot Stirrer Podcast will be back after this. It's July, and we at Flying Machine have started our month-long Patreon drive for myself and for all of us that are part of Flying Machine. We love being able to share our knowledge, talents, and art with all of you through our podcasts, blogs, and videos. And we're super grateful that you choose to take time out of your lives to take in what we share as a labor of love. But we really would like to see this thing we call Flying Machine grow. And this is why, if you're so inclined and able, we would love for you to be a Flying Machine patron. All month, you'll see us roll out some really cool things, and you'll get a taste of the additional content you'll receive as a Flying Machine patron. I'll get into that more as the month goes on, but if you'd like to learn more, check out flyingmachine.network support. As always, thank you for listening and checking out our content. And if you already participate in Flying Machine's Patreon, we appreciate your support. Now, back to Potstirer Podcast. Another issue with the 15 Justice Court that Mayor Pete supports is that the idea of court packing, packing the court with justices more likely to support your policies, tends to be a pretty unpopular idea. Like I said earlier, the U.S. Supreme Court is set to nine justices due to the Judiciary Act of 1869. Before this, the number of seats increased from five up to ten. After the Civil War, in 1866, the Republican majority Congress wanted to pare down the number of seats from ten to seven to keep President Andrew Johnson, a Democrat, from appointing justices to the court. But by 1869, only two justices had departed, leaving eight justices. Congress added back a seat, making it nine, and passing the Judiciary Act of 1869 to make it official. But this hasn't stopped subsequent politicians from attempting to change the structure of the court. The most famous of these efforts, or infamous depending on who you ask, is the court packing scheme of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, also known as FDR. FDR was president from 1933 through 1945. 
He's the only president elected to more than two terms, which can no longer happen today with presidents due to the 22nd Amendment. Roosevelt was elected to office four times and died in office during his fourth term at the tail end of World War II. FDR's achievements, including the New Deal, leading the U.S. out of the Great Depression, and his leadership during World War II, tend to land him on lists by many political historians, pundits, and social scientists as one of the best presidents of all time. His presidency also led to some advancements for Black Americans, including Executive Order 8802, which created the Fair Employment Practice Commission and enforced the ban on discriminatory hiring within the federal government as well as government contractors based on race, color, creed, or national origin. This was an important precursor to affirmative action programs, and it also began the shift of Black American loyalties from the GOP to the Democratic Party, which was accelerated in the 1960s. At the same time, if we examine FDR's presidency in greater depth, his legacy is very complicated. While promising to desegregate the armed forces, at the end of the day, he didn't do so. They were not desegregated until his successor, President Harry S. Truman. Roosevelt criticized lynching, which was commonplace in the early 1900s, but would not support anti-lynching legislation because he didn't want Southern Democrats to turn against him. FDR's administration was also responsible for stripping people of Japanese descent, including U.S. citizens, of their property and confining them to internment camps, which, prior to the public revelation of the Holocaust, were called concentration camps. And speaking of the Holocaust and concentration camps, in addition, FDR's administration enforced laws severely limiting immigration of Jewish refugees from Europe. And even once he was informed of the final solution, he still refused to support the loosening of immigration laws, which led to many more Jews falling victim to the Holocaust. So yeah, complicated. Now, when we talk about FDR's positive triumphs like, like the New Deal, we also have to talk about how he worked to achieve them, which brings us to the courts. The New Deal was a series of government programs enacted to alleviate the effects of the Great Depression on suffering Americans. While Social Security, the National Labor Relations Board, Ford's Progress Administration, and other programs that came out of the New Deal were considered successes, the New Deal didn't end the Great Depression. Arguably, World War II did, but that's a complicated question to get into and it probably deserves its own episode. Well, FDR wanted to do more as part of the New Deal at the beginning of his second term, but he was encountering increasing resistance from the U.S. Supreme Court, which was more conservative than Roosevelt and Congress, and was striking down some of the New Deal programs as unconstitutional. FDR was bothered by the fact that the justices weren't retiring fast enough, and a lot of it was because at that time, the pensions for retired justices had been cut in half and they would rather work and make money than be retired and lose half their income. This meant that at this point in his presidency, Roosevelt couldn't appoint anyone. At one point, justices hadn't retired for five years. So in 1937, FDR floated around the idea of changing the law so that he can appoint more sympathetic justices to the Supreme Court, neutralize the conservative justices, and continue full speed ahead with the New Deal. His plan would appoint a new justice for every justice who was 70 or older, 
which at the time came out to six additional justices for a 15-seat SCOTUS. This plan garnered him a lot of criticism by the media, the public, and the justices themselves, because the move was seen as an act of a power-hungry executive overstepping his bounds. This plan was never considered by Congress. Now, what ended up happening was two U.S. Supreme Court justices changed their positions, voting in favor of Roosevelt's legislation. So at the end of the day, he got what he wanted, and this threat plan was set aside. The court pensions were later reinstated in full, and justices began retiring again as normal, allowing FDR to appoint justices to the court. But this court packing plan was seen as a scandal and a blemish on his legacy. If we look at the 15 justice plan of today, and it is a slightly different plan, the issue is that any Democrat who could end up as president after the 2020 election will not be as popular as Franklin Roosevelt. Our country and our political parties are bitterly divided ideologically. So a plan that looks like you're trying to shape the court artificially in your own image, even if it's to counteract the actions of the other major party, is not likely to go over well politically. FDR took a hit for his court packing plan, but he was still popular enough to survive it, and he went on to be elected for two more terms. After 2020, may not be so lucky. The other major issue I see with the 15 justice plan is that the plan, particularly the selection of independent justices, may not be constitutional. Here is the eligibility and selection process for U.S. Supreme Court justices per Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution. Quote, he, meaning the president, shall have power by and with the advice and consent of the Senate to make treaties provided two-thirds of the senators present concur, and he shall nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for, and which shall be established by law, but the Congress may by law vest the appointment of such inferior officers as they think proper in the president alone, in the courts of law, or in the heads of departments. End quote. Then, Article 3 of the Constitution says this, quote, The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court, and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. The judges, both of the supreme and inferior courts, shall hold their offices during good behavior and shall, at stated times, receive for their services a compensation which shall not be diminished during their continuance in office. End quote. As of right now, U.S. Supreme Court justices are nominated by the executive with the advice and consent of the Senate to serve a term commonly interpreted to be a life term. Justices tend to either die in office or retire. They can be impeached and removed, similar to the president. Only one U.S. Supreme Court justice has been impeached, Justice Samuel Chase, back in 1805, but he wasn't removed. So generally, justices serve until they die or retire. The idea being that although they are chosen by the other branches of government, they are expected to be independent of partisan or personal loyalties. The reality is eh, kind of mixed. But in any case, 
That's the idea. To execute the 15 Justice Plan, the Judiciary Act of 1869, which sets the number of U.S. Supreme Court justices to nine, would need to be repealed. But that's the easy part. Now, here's the hard part. The plan would likely need a constitutional amendment, both for the fixed proportion of partisan justices, which would take the selection process out of the President's and Senate's hands, and the independent justices, who would not only be selected within the judiciary itself, which violates the Constitution, but gives those justices fixed terms, again, not in the Constitution. To amend the U.S. Constitution, there is a two-step process. The first step is proposal. The amendment needs to be proposed by either two-thirds of both chambers of Congress or by constitutional convention called by two-thirds of state legislatures. The second step of the process is ratification. To officially add the amendment to the Constitution, it must be ratified or approved by three-fourths of the states. This is done by either a vote in state legislatures or approval through ratifying convention. The process of adding an amendment involves Congress and the states. The president and the courts are not involved. Even if the Democrats end up with both chambers of Congress in 2020, an amendment changing the structure and selection process of the Supreme Court is highly, highly unlikely to see the light of day. It's very important for us to know what Democrats are up against. And for now, things do look a bit bleak. Not only for Democrats, but for any of us who can see how nakedly corrupt and craven our government has become. Despite the fact that I don't think that this particular plan is viable, I do think there is a silver lining, but it's going to take a while to get there. Democrats, including centrists and progressives, need to unite on a platform. We need to get over this ridiculous obsession with capturing Trump voters, and we need to push the Overton window more to the left. Right now, we're at a point where caging children and separating families seeking asylum is being normalized, and the opposition to this is considered radical left wing. That's wild. That means that you and I, all of us, need to talk to our friends, families, and our representatives in accurate language. For example, refugees are legally entitled to seek asylum in the country of their choosing. This is international law. There is a process, and applying for asylum doesn't mean they'll get it, but they are entitled to start the process, which requires them to be at the country's port of entry or on their soil. In other words, they have to actually be in the U.S. to seek asylum, so they're not illegal immigrants. So we need to stop arguing about whether or not Democrats want to decriminalize immigration or if Democrats want open borders. These are distractions. Call them out as such. We also need to focus on winning back state legislatures, governorships, and other state and local offices. State legislatures in a lot of Republican-run states are also gerrymandered. So the laws need to be changed so that everyone's vote counts the same and can have the same level of impact. Support proposed initiatives and referendums that fight gerrymandering and expand the electorate and oppose legislation that restrict voting rights because the courts are not going to save us. And vote every time the polls are open. That means vote in 2019 too. Don't wait until 2020. Work on Congress. Vote for congressional reps and senators. 
and campaign for your preferred candidates. Give your time or money, whatever you have. This is important. This is vitally important. It may take years, even decades, to see real change for the better, but the Republicans had no problem playing the long game. They've been on this road since the 70s, and they've only seen the real fruits of it more recently. It's difficult and disheartening to not see the fruits of our labor right away. I get it. But we need to do the same. We need to run this race. Our country is worth taking our time to save. Thank you very much for listening to Potstar Podcast. Did you enjoy the podcast? If you did, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. And make sure you tell your friends. And if you're really enjoying what you hear and you feel this is informative, please rate it five stars and leave a review. This isn't so I can feel better. It's just to increase our visibility on the charts. And I love hearing from you guys. I'm at PotstarCast on Twitter and at PotstarPodcast on Instagram. So feel free to reach out. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. I give you the incredible flying machine.